your Bibles with me, if you would, to the prophet Micah. Prophet Micah. I find him among the 12 minor prophets. Micah is right there in the middle. I'll give you a second to see if you can find uh, Micah there. God is moving his great story of redemption forward. Expectation, this longing, this building on the part of God's people for a coming king in the line of David. This is what we've been hearing in this season. This king is going to restore his people. He's going to restore justice. He's going to restore the right worship uh, of the living God. And so the birth of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, what the people of Israel have been waiting for, what they've been, been hoping for, even if their life experience hasn't exactly uh, shown this or been consistent uh, with this because like the nations around them, they are going to come under the judgment of the Lord. They're going to suffer for their uh, rebellion against him because they've really made a mockery of God's grace. They have presumed upon his mercy and upon his kindness. And now that the leaders of the land, leaders like scribes and priests and judges, they're not only promoting, but they're modeling injustice. Taking advantage of the poor, accepting bribes, you know, offering the word of blessing. All will go well with you for a nice little, you know, nice little handout on the side. So the prophet Micah condemns uh, this action, warns of God's uh, judgment on the people of Judah. Uh, but his, his prophecy goes back and forth between this warning of judgment and this a word of hope for the people. The Lord God is holy. He's just. They would suffer, but their suffering would not last forever. Um, he will restore them and bring uh, the justice that he promised. And so we, we don't know much about the prophet Micah. We know he left his hometown in the, in the south to speak the word of the Lord uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. We know a lot more about uh, Isaiah and, and, and what we have uh, from him. But the kingdom of Israel is split. You have Israel in the north, and then you have the tribe of, of Judah, the southern kingdom. And this is during the time where the Assyrians are, are moving in and threatening, um, threatening the people. And uh, so these prophets are living and warning uh, during this time, which also means they have very similar themes, similar uh, form to their... To their prophecy, laments, hymns, uh, oracles of salvation, oracles of warning are all part of, of their prophecy. In fact, if you go to Micah 4 and Isaiah 2, you'll see they start exactly the same. They use the same, same language um, between these two prophets. So if you want the cliff notes of, Isaiah, of the 66 chapters of Isaiah, just take 20, 30 minutes and read Micah. And that would, uh, would give you a pretty good idea of what's happening uh, during this time. We're going to read Micah 5, the first four verses, opening of verse 5, the original slightly different break in these, in these uh, sections. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, 
He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is God's holy and enduring word. Let's thank him for it. Lord, it's our desire to give you thanks and praise for your word. Your word that is uh, an enduring feast for us. Lord, feed us now. We know that your word will accomplish its purpose. That it will not return to you void. Wherever your word is cast, it brings life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would feed us faithfully now through this word as we consider the this prophecy of old and what it means for your people today, the true Israel of God, your church, gathered in this place and around your world. As we look to you, the promised Messiah has come for us. Lord, make us attentive now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number four, asks that question, um, what is God? What is God? Some of you know the answer to that question, or you've reviewed it. Uh, God is spirit. He's, he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. He's also unchangeable in his wisdom and power and holiness and goodness. He's unchangeable in his justice and truth. That's all part of, of that answer. God is just. God knows what is right. He always does what is right. God himself defines what is right. He is what is right. Which means that as adopted children of God and, and disciples of his only begotten son, uh, we are to pursue justice, desire after justice, so something I want us to think about this morning as we consider this prophecy, are we, are we the type of people who promote justice? Do we fight for justice across the spectrum of human experience? Some of you have been watching or at least heard of uh, this, one of the latest uh, cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, it's Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health. And so the court is evaluating arguments for and against the, the Mississippi uh, Gestational Age Act, which would uh, restrict abortions in that state to 15 weeks of gestation, which is still far too long for the, the murder of an unborn child. But if the court upholds this, it would effectively you know, push abortion law back to the state. It's a huge case. <clears throat> scrutinizing the precedent of murder in this land since, since the early 70s, almost 50 years ago, Roe versus Wade. Consider that the U.S. is only one of seven nations in the world, one of seven that allows abortion on demand um, you know, after 20 weeks of pregnancy. So when you consider that, we are murderous people. We live among murderous people across the spectrum thinking to you know, the powers that be that, that claim to be saving lives through quarantine and testing and vaccination while almost completely ignoring the actual pandemic of loneliness and a pandemic of, 
of depression and suicide and overdose that is taking far more lives than a virus in its variants. Justice, are we, are we tuned in, learning ways that we can encourage justice in our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, uh, breakfast. A couple of weeks ago in Jacksonville, in the parking lot, there was a vehicle that had BLM painted around the sides of it, and on the very back, uh, in big letters, was no justice, N-O, no justice, no peace. And I see phrases like that and, and consider what's, what's underneath that's being communicated here. It's not helpful in the pursuit of justice. Because what, what's underneath, the sentiment behind no justice, no peace, is if I don't get what I want, or I don't get what I believe is coming to me, then I have the right to break things. Or to overthrow, uh, break up existing structures of uh, justice. So it promotes a vigilante justice. That only, it only ends in chaos and anarchy. But this is this is the blood that's flowing through the flowing through the veins of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's, it's the legs of of critical race theory. It actually encourages the division and racism and lawlessness that it claims to be fighting against. Because they don't know K N O W justice and the righteous judge of all the earth. So the people of Israel needed to hear the heart of God for justice. Because the righteous judge will vindicate his holiness upon his own people. He shows no partiality. They're going to suffer for their rebellion, but his mercy, well, his mercy is more. His mercy is, is greater, righteous ruler, with very humble beginnings, who faithfully and justly uh, shepherd his flock. So if we're going to read and apply the word of God rightly here, we need to hear what the people of Judah needed to hear. And then there may not be a one-for-one one correlation between Judah's experience and our own here in, in 2021, almost 22, but the continuity is there. The principle remains for us to apply the church and to ourselves. So I want us to see the warning of judgment and the hope for justice. Warning and hope in this Advent uh, season Warning comes in verse 1 here because the Assyrian, the Assyrians are camped outside of Jerusalem and they're literally banging on the door uh, there at Jerusalem. The northern kingdom of Israel has already you know, fallen to the Assyrians. Now they're taunting King Hezekiah. He's not even referred to as a king here. He's just the, the judge of the people, metaphorically slapping in the face. You have no army that can stand against the Assyrians. This is a joke. What are you going to do? Now, the Assyrians will ultimately take Jerusalem. But the Lord is, is exercising his justice in their siege. But later he would remove the people. They would be taken captive by the Babylonians. If we go back to 4 verse 10, he likens this to the pain of a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the land of your enemies. So there will be the pains of labor in this exile. But those, those pains don't last forever. Thankfully, there is relief. They come to an end. There, there will be restoration 
from exile. And so this word coming from the holiness of God, a just God, it should produce a humility in the people. It should produce a repentance in all peoples, showing that even, even God's chosen, even the most sacred places, like the temple in Jerusalem, they would come under the judgment of those who would lose sight of God's purpose for them, why he had redeemed them. They must look to the Lord and return to him so the nations around them have some idea of what it's like to worship the living God. So the warning should produce repentance, a genuine lament over the advances of Judah's enemies, the enemies of God, and the suffering that is to come. So for us, we're living in the new covenant, but we're still in this, this wilderness, this time of exile between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. And we here, in this world, you will have trouble. We here, others will hate us because we align with Christ and his good commands. We hear that God disciplines those that he loves, and that discipline is often painful. We'll experience the discipline of God for our own sin, but also you know, the pain and death that comes with this not yet of living in union with Jesus. We have peace with God already. We have a glorious inheritance already, right now, with Jesus. But our redemption is not yet fully realized. And so we lament. I've got a feeling that this morning, even as, as we share the things that we're going to be in prayer for, lament should be a regular part of our prayer life. Use the Psalms to guide your lament. How long? I mean, that, that is the prayer of every Christian, especially in the season of Advent. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Because this illness simply will not go away. Maybe I, I'm taking what seems to be one step forward and two steps back in this addiction. Just keep going back to it. Relationships. Relationships are fractured. I don't see any, any real change on the horizon right now. This work is toilsome, and it makes me sort of embittered. I've attended too many funerals this last year. How long, O oh Lord? And it's the character of God, the promises of God that provide our comfort in lament. And it enables us to wait. To wait just that one more hour for the one who holds us. You know, warnings like this would not have been easy to hear, if you were living in Jerusalem at the time, Isaiah and Micah were not exactly popular mm -hmm. uh, with their congregations. But they were faithful to speak the word of the Lord. Even after denouncing the rulers and the prophets at the time. Here's what Micah said in 3 verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You know, something that I have to do often is repent of my own people-pleasing. Where I tend to fear, maybe what other people think and say, when I fear the living God. But reading Micah here, it actually, uh, I take 
comfort. I take consolation. And even when I say dumb things and silly things, God can use that and does use that. Because the authority of a message doesn't rest with me. You have no idea. I can begin to describe to you how helpful that is to know as I go about my work every day. Now, this is not the common posture for a mainstream preacher and prophet of God. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I ran across this um, quote from a French pastor, the pastor to the Huguenots, the Reformed Church in France during the Reformation and after. He said this, ministers are not cooks, but physicians, and therefore should study not to delight the palate, but to recover the patient. So the word may not be popular. The remedy may be painful, but it comes from the Lord of life. And the scalpel, the finest physician. So that the fact that you don't all heckle me, and you could stand to be a little more vocal, okay? But you don't all heckle me and throw things from week to week, you don't walk out every week. Now that could be a sign that I'm not speaking faithfully or as forcefully as I should be, or that you're willing to submit to the Word of God and incline your hearts to Christ so that together we can repent and believe all the more. So I pray it's the latter. God's so very gracious in giving us his word. And so the people are hearing this warning, but then the next verses offer hope for justice. There has to be a delay under the judgment of God, but they will be restored. Justice is going to prevail again. Why do we need to hear that? A righteous ruler will come. He'll come from a very small, obscure place called Bethlehem. And to avoid any confusion, he says, well, likely the district of Ephrathah, we know which Bethlehem this is. Bethlehem is about five and a half, six miles south of Jerusalem. And it really was a, a pass-through village, a pass-through town. People would stay there on their way to the larger city of Jerusalem and be all that large compared to what we know today. But maybe like stopping in Ward, and staying there and you wait a little rock. Or if you're coming from this side, it'd be Mayflower. You stop there and you wait to Little Rock. What's interesting is when you look at the clans of Judah, if you go to Joshua 15, you read all of the, the cities in Judah, there's 46 names. Bethlehem is enlisted. Of all 46. So this righteous ruler has got very humble beginnings. But why Bethlehem? We know this by now because that's where King David was from, 1 Samuel 16. So when we read that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, we hear that ancient days language. We may have Daniel 7 kind of come to our mind. This is the ancient of days who sits enthroned over all. But in context here, it's really moving us back to the era of David. God's covenant promise to David, one from his line. David himself being a coming from humble beginnings as a shepherd. This one will rule of Israel and shepherd uh, his flock and the strength of the Lord. And so we go to the Gospel of John, who tells us that the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. 
who knows his flock, will lay down his life for his flock. And in the birth narratives, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 2, tells us that the good shepherd had lowly and humble beginnings. Joseph and Mary, they have nothing. They're in poverty. Jesus is born into poverty. He's placed in a wooden feed trough at his birth, living in, in other people's space. And he's been born in this obscure little town of Bethlehem. And then there are, there are ancient scholars, you know, astrologers, who by God's providence see that this anomaly in the heavens, and they say, we need, to, we need to follow this. Maybe they had some of the ancient writings that told them that there's a king connected with this, uh, with this star. But where do they go? They, they don't go to Bethlehem. They go to where you would expect the king to be born, present, right, in the larger city of Jerusalem. And what the response that they give when, they, when they're there is really remarkable. We'll come back to that in a second. But Matthew 2, verse 6, seals for all time who the prophet Micah was talking about. The righteous ruler had humble, obscure beginnings, but a glorious end. And they shall dwell secure, this is verse 4. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So the one to redeem, the one to restore, this ruler to be born in Bethlehem would not just bring about peace and end to fighting, he would actually be the peace the remnants of God. He would be righteous. He would execute justice over all the earth. This is, this is the one that the, the true Israel of God has been waiting for. It would be so worth the wait. I was thinking of Michael and April Manley again as, as they were waiting to hold their baby girl. I could tell you, I can almost guarantee it wouldn't take very long as they hold little Mary Ann for them to say and to think this was worth the wait. I mean, we get excited about you know, the start of a new sports season or um, the release of a new film, perhaps, or maybe midterm elections. They were excited about those coming. Um, we get excited about these things, but they pale in comparison, completely pale in comparison to the arrival of the promised king. This king will be mighty, powerful. He'll reign over all the earth. So after a time of, of captivity and destruction, you know, the temple would be destroyed. The temple would be rebuilt. And it would be, would be known again, not just locally, but it would be known around the world. And then the rule of this king would be recognized around the world. And I like what one commentator says here. Because in some ways, the temple's elevation and the king's elevation will coincide. The king's rule will extend to the rest of the world. So maybe, I'm hearing John's gospel here, chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. So Jesus dwelt. He tabernacles, he temples among the people. And so the elevation of the temple, the elevation of the king come together in the Lord Jesus. All those united to Jesus, being raised up as a holy temple in the Lord. Isaiah says, this child, this righteous ruler, is going to be the prince of peace. So it doesn't surprise us. Micah uses similar language. He will be their peace, the one of peace. On the night of Jesus' birth, the angels give praise to God. We've been singing it this morning. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, 
peace. Apostle Paul uses this language in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Oh Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Who made both one, is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So peace with God, peace with others. It's a peace that's come already, but not yet fully. With this king born in Bethlehem. He is a ruler who will right all wrongs. All that is sad will come untrue. All agony will be turned to glory. He's going to wipe away every tear in the eyes of those who've been waiting for him. So is this righteous ruler born in Bethlehem, is he your ruler? Jesus was placed on that piece of wood at his birth. He's placed on a piece of wood at his death. The depths of humiliation would come at the cross where Jesus willingly endured the punishment for your sin and mine. But that humiliation would give way to glorious resurrection and exaltation at the right hand of the Father where he reigns in this very moment. And this righteous ruler, the king on David's throne, he is either lord of your life, of every part of your life, or he is not lord of your life at all. See, there were those in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth who knew exactly where he was going to be born. Where this righteous ruler would come, this king of the Jews. Herod actually consulted them when these foreign scholars started poking around asking questions. Chief priests, scribes, they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so they quote Micah chapter 5, Old Bethlehem. <laughs> Duh, Herod, I thought you had something hard for us. But notice, where are these Jewish scribes and chief priests? Reading Sinclair Ferguson this last week, and clued me in on this. They're not checking this out for themselves. They knew where this, this would happen. And they, but instead of escorting these wise men, saying, hey, we know where this is. We'll take you down there. Let's go check it out. No, they're staying back in the city of Jerusalem. Maybe their lives depended on that. But they know where Christ would be born and stay put. A couple lines from Ferguson here. Herod and his counselors possessed what the wise men lacked. The scriptures that spoke about Christ. But they lacked what the wise men had, the desire to find him. It's possible to know the Bible well and be tone deaf to its message. So I think we need to be cautious. Well, let's take from this a caution that with the familiarity of this season, the familiarity of the Bible passages, the familiarity of the Psalms, that we're not tone deaf to the message. That the righteous ruler, our peace, has come. So three ways that you can respond to Jesus in his birth. All three of them are right here in Matthew chapter 2. Um, you can know all about Jesus. You can attend all the Sunday school classes. Maybe you've taught the Sunday school classes. It's just been a part of your upbringing and life in the church. And yet you can remain uninterested and indifferent Toward Jesus, just like the Jewish scholars. You may respond 
like Herod, but hearing the news of this king, then you're going to actively try and, and avoid, if not destroy, this threat to your personal autonomy and kingship. <clears throat> or there's a third option. That when you hear about Jesus, you, you want to learn more. You want to seek him like the wise men did. And I pray that's what you have done. That by the help of the Holy Spirit, we continually seek the face of this righteous ruler that we might worship him. It's a verse of an early 18th century poem that helps us. Only seek and you will find him. Never cease to seek the Lord. And should he delay, remind him boldly of his plighted word. Follow him and he will lead you. Trust him in the darkest night. Jacob's star will still precede you. Jacob's star will give you light. In our pursuit of Jesus, the righteous ruler, we will pursue justice and mercy just as he does. Micah reinforces this in chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. When the spiritual forces of evil and the enemies of God push back against justice and they call right wrong and wrong right and we feel the brunt of this, we can be at peace. Because we belong to the king, the good shepherd who is our peace. Church family, justice lives. Justice reigns right now. One day soon, that justice is it's going to roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're one day closer. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that just as your prophet foretold, that justice would roll on like the rivers, and that you, the righteous ruler of all, return in glory and majesty. Until then, Lord, that we wait. Help us to wait patiently. Hear our cries of lament. Assure us that you are our peace, that you are our joy in this season and throughout the year. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.